Um, but that's okay because, you know, uh, the kids will love talking about repentance, right? Isn't that everybody's favorite word? Don't, don't, don't your kids get up and go like, I need to repent today, Mom. Right? Isn't that the usual word that you hear from your kids, right? Probably our kids. Our kids are so godly because our parents are so godly, right? Isn't that how it works? Okay, all right. Y'all have a sense of humor today? Okay, good. Good. It's good to see y'all. Um, and I say it almost every week, but what a privilege it is to gather. This is such a privilege. It really is. Hey, let's take our Bibles and we're going to continue in the book of Zechariah. Well, actually continue. We're going to start that book today. We did Haggai and now we're going to do Zechariah. And what a great book for us to start. We have, after this book, we have one more book uh, in the Minor Prophet series. Uh, after that, it's Malachi. And then we're done with the Minor Prophets after... I have, I don't know how many weeks it's been now, but when I looked at my notes, I have 700 pages of notes, all right, in this series so far. So, um, you know, it'll probably be a thousand possibly, you know, by the time we finish this thing. Because uh, if you don't know, this is, a, they call it Minor Prophets because of the, really the length of the book, but this is 14 chapters. So uh, we'll see how long it takes to, to get this one through. Can I introduce the book a little bit to you? Just, I'm going to talk to you about the overall Kind of thought and theme of the book here. But then, today's message, we're going to look at the first six verses. And the first six verses, this idea keeps resonating in the text of the continual work of repentance. The continual work of repentance. Repentance is something we do at salvation. But there's also an ongoing life of repentance. Not to earn something from God, but because of what has been earned on our behalf. We're going to look at that here in a little bit in verses 1 through 6. But first, let me tell you a little bit about an overview of the book that may help you a little bit. Uh, This is probably, of all the minor prophets, one of the most difficult to interpret because it has so much apocalyptic literature to it. Once we get into uh, the halfway point, verse 7 of chapter 1, and we go on for a couple chapters, there's eight visions, and there could be some difficulty interpreting the last four chapters of this book have this kind of near and far away kind of idea where there's a prophecy about what God's going to do in Jerusalem with the Messiah coming, but also points to a future kingdom that the Messiah will rule over. Some would interpret that to be the millennial kingdom. Some would just jump to the new heaven and new earth. But there's it, it's a very difficult portion uh, to interpret. That's coming. But here's what I love about this book, the name. Zechariah, what it means. It means Yahweh remembers. If you want a good baby name, that's a great baby name. Yahweh remembers. God remembers. So a lot of the minor prophets, you know, prophets, they kind of call people to repent. No one really, you know, prophets don't have a lot of friends. Zechariah is a little bit different in the sense that he's a prophet and he does call people to repentance But a lot of his ministry is a lot more encouragement than you're doing wrong. Although he has a little bit of that. But it's a lot of, hey, let me remind you people. Remember, God has made a promise to you. Just so you understand in context, Zechariah is encouraging them to keep rebuilding the temple. Remember in Habakkuk that we just, not Habakkuk, Haggai. Man, all these names. Remember Haggai, they had started rebuilding. Well, about three months later, a contemporary of Haggai Zechariah here is encouraging them too, encouraging the spiritual state of their soul as they're working on the temple. So his name means Yahweh remembers, and he's helping them to remember, listen, this rebuilding of this temple, God made a promise to Abraham that from this people, he was going to bring a Messiah. From this land, he was going to bring a people. Yahweh remembers. And in our lives, I think we need to have a lot of Zechariah moments. Yahweh remembers. You know what will give steel in our spines if we every day have kind of a Zechariah time? Do a favor for me, all right? Look over at your neighbor and say this phrase. You need, I'll do it, look over your neighbor and say, you need a Zechariah time every day. Yahweh remembers. So I love that his name basically is Yahweh remembers the covenant promises he's made to Abraham. And just so you know, all the covenants 
they kind of link up to each other. The first covenant that we see in Genesis 3.15 of the promise of the Messiah, it links up to the Abrahamic covenant someday because not only would God bring the, not only would God make a people, a, a nation from Israel, but from that nation, he would bring the Messiah. So this is all about Yahweh remembers and we all need Zechariah moments. This is what makes all of us the most vulnerable in life. We are not made to, to not have little rhythms of rest in our life where we can just remember who God is, remember what he does. That's why it's essential for your soul to gather with your body. It's essential to hear preaching. It's essential to be in the word. It's essential to be in discipling relationships. It's essential to hear other people declare what God has done. Because we've got to remember. And don't we forget quick, right? Have you ever got something from just gathering with the body on Sunday and you forgot it by Monday at noon, right? Or it may be after lunch or even after a Sunday nap. Yeah, we, re- we forget really quick, don't we? Yahweh remembers. What a great name. Yahweh remembers. He's reminding them, like, listen, you can do what God has called you to do. There's, I, know, I know it's hard to rebuild this temple. I know there's a, a lot of... Um, there's a lot of political turmoil around you, but keep building this temple. God has made a promise. I like that. Also, just when you go through Zechariah, I want you to understand, he also, when you were, if you were to look at uh, Nehemiah chapter 12, he has priestly lineage. So there's also another reason why this guy, he's a prophet, he's declaring God's truth, and he's even doing some predicting, but also he has some priestly DNA in him. So that's why he's a little bit uh, more genteel than it would seem like other prophets. So that's the book of Haggai, just a little snapshot. By the way, this is probably one of the most quoted minor prophet books. In this book is where you'll find quotes such as uh, Judas betraying Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, Jesus' side being pierced, Jesus entering into Jerusalem on a donkey, the believers being scattered after the cross, that prophecy fulfillment, that comes from Zechariah. So this, this book is loaded with gospel implications all the way through and through. Now, here's what I want to do. Let's stand in reverence to the reading of God's word. And I want to read chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. And then I want to go over and read. I, I know it's like, wait a minute. Why are you going to jump to another book? Just hang with me. Then we're going to read Ezra chapter 6. Verse 13 through 18. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Barakai, the son of Ado, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they now? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I command my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, as the Lord of hosts purposed to deal with us, For our ways and deeds, so has he dealt with us. Now, hold your place there and go back over to Ezra. It's right after Chronicles. It's right after 2 Chronicles, which is after 1 Chronicles. Which is before 2 Kings, 1 Kings, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel. Look at Ezra chapter 6. So I want you to know, remember, the context is they're building, rebuilding the temple. Right? Haggai had already t- encouraged them to rebuild the temple. They already had some repentance to do. Encouraging repentance again. Now this is beautiful. Look in verse 13. And according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatanai, the governor of the province beyond the river... Sheth Bozani and the associates did with all diligence with what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying. Look at verse 14. The Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Ado, 
They finished their building by the decree of the God of Israel, by the decree of, of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house, talking about the temple, was finished on the third day of the month in the second year of the reign of Darius the king. Let's pray over this text. Thank you for this text of the word. And may we get from it what you've intended for the original recipient first. And then for us, as we apply today, and God's people said, amen. I had you read the Ezra text because I want you to understand. This was year two where we're in Zechariah. Year two of, of King Darius' reign when we were in Haggai just a couple weeks ago. And in the sixth year of Darius, we find that the temple gets finished. And we find that through the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah the prophet. So here's what I find. When I look at the first six verses of our text today, I find that something interesting is happening. I've turned all the way away from the text myself. I find something interesting has happened. He's encouraging this life of repentance. He's talking about the lack of repentance that the forefather, that their fathers had had. And their lack of repentance is what led them into Babylonian captivity. Now God has been faithful to his promises. Seventy years later, he's bringing them back to Jerusalem. They're rebuilding the temple, rebuilding society. You're going to see them reinstitute the priestly functions later on in Zechariah. You're going to see all that. And here's what I find. When I look back at Ezra, I find that what, what really happened? The people kept building. It took several years. But there was what, what kept them right? The continual work of repentance on their life. I mean... God had, a, had something for them to do, to do it. But here's what I found. Any kind of ministry you do in life, I mean, you work for the Lord, you love the Lord, you serve the Lord, you try to do his work. Their work that God had for them at this moment in time was rebuilding the temple, doing God's work. But have you ever done God's work and lost your soul in the process? Let me say that again. Have you ever been doing God's work and lost your soul in the process? I've been in ministry 23 years now, and I had a lot of guys start in ministry with me, go to Bible school with me, and it is amazing how many have lost their morals in the midst of doing a lot of great work. What happens? There's this continual work of the soul that has to happen. You can lose your soul even in the midst of doing really great things. I mean, you can be a disciple maker doing things and lose your soul in the midst of it. And what really helps in our text I want to propose to you this continual idea of repentance. We, we find back in Haggai, they were called to repentance in chapter 1 from an idea of selfishness. Remember, they were self-centered and they were called to, you, you've done nothing but focus on your home and not rebuilding of the temple. So they, got, they went from an inward focus to an outward focus again. But here he's calling them to repentance again. And what could be some of the things that they would need to repent of? Well, I'll give you an example, an idea. Hold your place in Zechariah 1. Don't worry, we're not going to go to another book. Look in chapter 7. He's recalling to them some of the sins of their forefathers, but also he would bring these up in chapter 7 because this would be something they would deal with as well. Look in verse 8. The word of the Lord, this is chapter 7, verse 8. The word of the Lord came to Zechariah saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Just so you know, their former generation stopped doing that. Why? Because they worshipped idols. They started worshipping false gods. Worship idols, worship false gods. Here's what happens. True judgments, kindness, and mercy is not there. Then what did they start to do? Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. When, 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 when we're not in worship, this is actually the result of it. When we worship something other than the one true God, this is actually what happens. We don't really care about issues like widows and the fatherless and the poor. By the way, what a smaller sin here. Look in verse 10. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. You know, a lot of us may go like, I have never hurt a widow. But have you ever thought, I know this is probably just me in this room. Have you ever thought evil about somebody, not even knowing if what you thought was actually true and accurate? Have you ever devised evil against a family member? We know nothing about that, right? It was interesting. A lack of worship. You could be working and doing for the Lord, but if there's not this continual work of repentance in our life, a renewing of repentance, 
what I find people do a lot of time is they, instead of focusing on, I'm the chief of sinners, and I am so, I'm so thankful to you, Lord, that you could forgive me. Instead, what you start doing is you start looking at the sins of others. And before long, sometimes you're imagining the sins of others. Did you know we can imagine the sins of others? I cannot tell you how many times I've heard in my 23 years of pastoral ministry, people having thoughts about other people that they, they just believe that they've discerned or have this feeling that this is what a person's thinking or has come to this conclusion. Am I talking in the air? Do y'all understand what I'm saying? Devising evil in your hearts? So he warns them of this later and says, this is something you, you can't do. By the way, look in verse 11. But they refused to pay attention. This is now talking about the former generation. They turned a stubborn shoulder, stopped their ears that they might not hear, and they made their hearts, what? Diamond hard. Diamond hard. What's a great idea? This is just a, how do you know that the work of repentance isn't really full and strong? I mean, there'll be the oppression of people. There'll be a lack of kindness and mercy. But you'll, I mean, this is just an, there's all these sins that are so easy to see, like not being kind, not giving mercy, but devising evil in your heart against somebody. That shows us, like at just a heart level, how far from a repentant life we're living. And in fact, look what he says. They made their hearts diamond hard, that former generation. Diamond hard. A hard-hearted heart. Look at verse 12. Lest they should hear the law and the words the Lord of hosts had sent through his spirit by the former prophets. Here's what happens. The former generation had rejected God's word, wouldn't listen to it, kept putting it off. The former generation wasn't having Zechariah moments. They weren't remembering Yahweh, right? It wasn't a Yahweh remembers kind of thing for them. And their hearts grew diamond hard. The evidence, evilness in their heart, evil thinking evil things about others. Then it manifests itself in social problems. The widows and the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor not taken care of. You see kindness and no mercy. Now go back to chapter 1. Why would I show you all that? The the reason is this. In verses 1 through 6, he is calling them to consider the former generation and consider this idea that we need to keep at a repentant kind of heart. We need to keep repenting, not to earn something from God, but in light of what God has done. What has God done in our text? God has, by his grace, undeserved and unmerited, has brought them back from Babylonian captivity. They deserve to go into Babylonian captivity. They never deserve to come out. But God brought them out by his good grace and his own promises, just like for us in Christ. God has delivered us from sin, not because of how great we are, but because of his great and faithful promises. And now what God says to them is, I've brought you back to the land. You didn't deserve it, but here's what I want you to do. There's this work of repentance that has to continue in your life, not so you can earn something from God. That's penance. Not so that you can earn your righteousness. That's penance. We don't do that. We do repentance. Now you might be going, okay, Nick, then help me out because I don't have a good definition of repentance. Well, then, let's do that now. What does the word repentance mean? It means to change your mind. That's what repentance means, to change your mind, a change of mind. Now, it's interesting. (coughs) If you were to look in, if you were to try to study the original languages that word repent, um, you'll see that kind of come in clarity. Look in your text of chapter 1. And I want you to look down. Hold on, I've got to adjust something. This thing keeps pulling on me here. Look down at verse 3. Therefore, say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you. That word return right there is the Hebrew word shove. It's the word that we get for repentance. The translators didn't use that word repent. They used the word return. It's a change of mind and go in a new direction. Now, at the very end in verse 6, it says in verse 6, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, they did, not, did they not overtake your fathers? And it says that the people, so they repented. There's the Hebrew word shuv, again, right here. And they repented. That word, that Old Testament word shuv is, uh, shuv is actually this um, idea. Actually, you could probably say the word shuv, right? You're kind of pushing your way in a direction of repentance. That word shuv is 
has the idea of a change of mind that results in a change of direction. Okay? So that word that you see of repent, it means I'm going in one direction and there's a change on the inside that results in a change on the outside of going in the opposite direction. That's a great idea of what repentance is. Now I want you to understand. When you get over to the New Testament, we even get some, um, some, some two types of repentance that are talked about. One type of repentance when you get over into the New Testament is the kind of repentance that Judas had. Any of y'all ever read Matthew 27, verse 3, where it talks about the repentance of Judas, and it says he repented, and we're all wondering, like, yeah, like, why did, why did he hang himself, and why did people talk like Judas is in hell today? Because he repented. Well, the Greek word used right in that text for Judas's type of repentance, it's called metamalomai, metamalomai. Maybe it's a word you want to just use any day, right? You can throw that around tomorrow, metalonomai. It's a, repent, it's a change of mind kind of repentance, but it doesn't mean a change of action or heart. It's what you would kind of call a worldly repentance. It's a kind of repentance where you're sorry you got caught and you're sorry about what happened, but there's really no change of heart and change of action, right? And it kind of looks like this. Metalonomai would look like this. I'm going in the wrong direction. Uh-oh, I got caught. I turn around but only to really turn back, right? Metalonomai. It is a change of mind, but it's not really a true worshipful change of heart. Metalonomai. That's the kind of repentance that Judas had. And by the way, that helps us to know when is our repentance godly and true and well. It, it, it isn't a short-lived thing. There's a change of heart, change of life that comes as a result. Now, there's also another word that gets used for repentance sometimes, and that's, that's two different words. In the verb form, it's metaneo, metaneo. In the uh, noun form, it's metanoia, metanoia. And it means the same thing, a change of mind, right? Just like metalonomai. Don't you just love these words today, right? They just love just walking around with these words. They're great little lunch conversations that you can have. Now, the word metalonomai is different. Uh, metala, I'm sorry. Man, I'm saying a lot of metas here. Metaneo. And metanoia, they're a little bit different from metalonomai. And I'll show this to you. Hold your place in Zechariah and go over to 2 Corinthians. I'll be wondering, man, are we ever going to get through Zechariah today? We will. I just want to show this to you because I think God's people don't really at times understand what the continual work of repentance looks like, some evidences. So he says in verse 10, oh, I'm sorry, uh, chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. It'd be helpful if I told you a chapter, wouldn't it? <laughs> Go to 2 Corinthians and look at this verse. Just find it. I'll start reading it. You'll know where it is. That's right. That's right. I should have used that self-righteous kind of adage. I should have said that. You should be reading your Bibles anyways. You should know. <laughs> Look in verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance. Okay? Now the word used there is metaneo. Metaneo. It's a change of mind, but it's a little bit different than Judas' repentance. It's a change of mind and life that results in a change of action. Right? It's a change of heart. It's a change on the inside that results in a change on the outside. And you'll see some evidences of it. Look at here in the text. He says, this Corinthian church, Paul had written them a letter. That letter had caused them to really grieve over their sin. It had caused them to grieve over their sin so much that it led them to a godly repentance, not a, not a worldly kind of repentance, not a Judas kind of repentance where there's a little bit of a change of mind, but not a real change of heart. And it led them to a true change, a change that resulted in change of heart and change of life and change of action, a going in a different direction. For godly grief, look in verse 10, produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. And notice the evidence in verse 11. See what earnestness this godly grief produced in you, what eagerness to clear yourselves, meaning when there's really true repentance, a a kind of... Godly repentance, a meta neo or a meta 
Lanoia, this kind of change of heart and change of life and change of action. It says, what eagerness to clear yourselves. You don't hide your sin anymore. You confess your sin. You know, you're allowed to confess sin. Confessing sin is actually a really good thing. Even like in our edified time, there's times where we're edified. Just the very fact of confessing sin is something that actually helps the church body. That's actually one of the one another's. What indignation. When there's godly repentance, you will see sin as God sees it. You will have an indignation. What fear of God. What longing, what zeal. You'll have a longing and a pursuit, a desire for God. Some people say sometimes, how do I know my repentance is genuine and godly and real? I would say, do you desire God? See, Judas didn't desire Jesus. What Judas desired was to solve a guilty conscience. That's a false repentance. Yeah, he had a change of mind. He felt bad that for the money that he had taken and the guilt, and it was too much for him. So he had nowhere to run but into self. And he ran into self so much that he could do nothing but kill himself. But the type of godly repentance is totally different. When you have a godly repentance, there's a change of mind that results in a change of heart and a change of action where you know you can't save yourself. And you run to the only one that can actually save you. And life changes. Now go back over to Zechariah. So what I want to propose to you is this. You remember in the beginning we looked at Ezra chapter 6 and saw the end like they, four years later, they got the temple rebuilt and it said they listened to the preaching of Haggai and Zechariah. What does that tell us? That tells us that what Haggai tried to do and what Zechariah is trying to do and this ongoing work of repentance was actually happening. Now, if you read enough, we'll read in Malachi, and if you read enough, you read further in Ezra, you find that that doesn't mean they were spotless and perfect. They still had some problems. They were still up to some things they shouldn't. And Ezra kind of, by the end of Ezra, the book of Ezra tries to get that kind of worked out. But what you do find is this. The children of Israel, after they come in from Babylonian captivity, are not perfect, but they're not near what they were before Babylonian captivity, right? Like when Jesus comes on the scene, you don't discover all the religious people around Jesus, they're not really worshiping idols anymore, right? Like they were doing before the Babylonian captivity. Now, they're a little hypocritical, a little little legalistic. I say a little, a lot. But they're not struggling in the same way. Why is that? Because there's some ongoing repentance that's happening for the next 400 years, preparing the stage to bring about the Messiah. Now, my proposing to God's people today is this. We must not forget that we have to be a people that are a repenting people. A people that know they're vulnerable and know that the work of repentance is an ongoing thing. Not to earn our salvation in Christ. I do not repent because I want to earn my salvation. That happened as a result of God's own grace at 16. I repented of my sinfulness, my sinful nature, and placed my faith in the finished work of the cross. But yet, as I continue to go about life, there is a continual repentance in my life. There is a continual... I see my sins as bigger now at 43 than I do at 16, although I don't sin near the way I did as a 16, 17, 18, 19, 20-year-old and, you know, use your imagination how a, how a, you know, how a young boy would sin. I don't sin near in the grossness and moral failures of what I did in those days. But today, I see myself as a greater sinner than I did then because as, as repentance, this work of repentance continually goes on in my life, I continue to look at who God is and I look at my sin not compared to Nick at 16, but I look at Nick compared to the holiness of God. And all I can do is say, woe for me, I am the chief of sinners. And then all I can do is go, how glorious is his forgiveness. I can't believe what's happening. Work of repentance, work of repentance, work of repentance. That's what changes you. That's why four years later, the temple gets finished. Because the people, although not perfect, have a work of repentance that's going on in their hearts. So my question is this. How's the work of repentance going in our own souls? Are we confessing sin? Are we seeing sin as God sees it? Remember, when there is true godly repentance, you're going in this direction and you have, you, there's a change of mind that results in a change of heart worship and a change of action. Now, it's interesting. Um, I, I got a degree in biblical counseling and one of the debates in the biblical counseling world right now is in the early years of biblical counseling, here's what the ca- biblical counselors taught. You're, you're going in the wrong direction of sin 
and change your action and go the other direction. And then as you do that, your heart will start to change. And that's how biblical change happens. Then a new regeneration of biblical counselors said, whoa, 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 whoa. That's just like rigid legalism. No, actually, there needs to be a change of heart. And once you have a change of heart, then you can have a change of action, right? And there's been this debate between the two, like, is the heart have to change first before the action or the action before the heart? Do you, you get the kind of debate that's going on? And when I was teaching out there as an adjunct professor last year, that was one of the things that some of my students were asking and they said, what do you think, Professor Nick? Which was hilarious that they call me Professor Nick. Even some called me, you know, like Dr. Brown. I'm like, well, you can't use, I don't, I don't have that title. But if I ever did, you, I would not be called Dr. Brown. I'd be called Dr. Bubba, right? Because like, how boss would it be to be called Dr. Bubba? <laughs> it sounds like a Coke, like an off-brand Coke can, doesn't it? You got any Dr. Bubba in the fridge? So they asked me, so, well, so, you know, Professor Brown, like, well, how, what, what do you think? And I said, I think it's a both and. A both and. What do we find here in Zechariah? The people are actively building. It was September when they started building. And August of this second year of Darius is when they got the first initial message from Haggai in chapter 1. You guys are living self-centered, selfish. That's August of the second year of Darius. By September, they are already starting to build the temple. When Zechariah gives this message right here, it's now November. They're already working on the temple. So they're already doing physical work. But what were they? They were already doing the action. But at the same time, there was heart stuff that had to keep happening. And you can discover back in Ezra chapter 6 that it says they listened to their prophets, of which the former generation never did. And what was happening? The ongoing work of repentance was happening in their soul. Like there is no way to accomplish the work of disciple-making, the work of fighting sin, the work of growing in grace, if there's not this ongoing work of repentance. So what would lead us and influence such things? I look in the text and I find a couple of things that I think help to influence. I see it in the text and I would say I see it even in my own life. Four things from the text I'm going to walk through. What helps to encourage this ongoing idea of repentance? First, it would be this. If you constantly are exposed and influenced to the character of God, there will be an ongoing work of repentance. If you are influenced by the power of God, there'll be a continual work of repentance. You're going to see that in the text. If, you're, if you see the example of the unrepentant and what God does, that helps to the ongoing work of repentance. And if we're influenced by God's truth, God's word, there'll be an ongoing work of repentance in our life. And you need it. The other night, um, uh, Friday night, when we were doing the wedding uh, for Madison, Jared, um, you know, my little sermonette, uh, you know, one of the things I told them is I said, as soon as you say I do, your marriage needs saving. You know, like, because your own sin nature and Satan is coming to attack you. And if any of you are, are married or have been married, you know what that's like, and you know that. And one of the things that has to happen is there has to be an ongoing work of repentance, like, that's what makes actually a marriage sweet. Actually, that's what makes any relationship sweet. Like, when you are constantly looking at the holiness of God and what you're like, it's amazing how much grace you extend to those people. It's amazing how much you care for those people. It's amazing even how you can confess your own sin and even gently admonish them when they're walking in sinful patterns. Now, let's look at verse 2. I want to show you some stuff. Point number one is we see repentance influenced through the character of God. So you look in verse 1, in the eighth month, the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. Look in verse 2. Here's what Zechariah tells them. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Was very angry with your fathers. Would anybody listen to a worship song that talked about God's anger today? Anybody writing songs about God's anger today, right? No, we just want the loving, dismissive, kind, grandpa kind of God. But actually, here's the thing that I think is so scary. Like the full character of God, he is absolutely loving. He is absolutely holy. Notice in the text, he reminds them and says, hey, just so you understand, God has been gracious to you to bring you back to the land of his own grace. You didn't deserve it, but watch out. Because 
God was very angry with your fathers. The full character of who God is. This helped to encourage their repentance. So we understand God does not wink an eye at sin. In fact, our sin today even makes the work of the cross even that much more difficult. As he bore the wrath of God, he was bearing the wrath of God for your sin. God's angry at sin. He's angry at it. There's no mistaking it. And I think sometimes we, we think that God winks at it because the cross, for us, the cross wasn't a lot of work. But the very fact that the cross was a lot of work for the Son actually tells us just how angry God is. I, you know, forever can we declare what Christ suffered on the cross in those three hours is more than any sinner ever would in hell. The wrath of God, the anger of God. I think sometimes people aren't repenting in their life because they don't really understand the character of God. They don't understand how holy he is. They don't understand God's wrath against sin. God is not permissive or dismissive. And the cross is our reason to see that. I think repentance becomes weak when we don't fully realize who the character of God is, what he's like. That's why, just as a side note, there's no way to know what God's character is by going to the Bible and cherry-picking a verse. Here's my daily verse. Here's my daily verse, right? You're not going to know what God's character is like. What do you got to do? You got to get in the book. I'm telling you. You got to read it cover to cover. Portions and sections, context. You got to know what the character of God is like. If we just cherry pick verses, and and by the way, love Bible apps, love you know giving a little daily kind of encouragement and stuff. But if that's as far of Bible text that you get, you're not getting the full scope of what God's character is like. Because just so we understand, most of our curriculum developed out there, like you get your average app that's trying to encourage you in the Lord each day, right? How many of those Bible apps, how many, how many verses have you seen about God's anger? Like, how many talk about his anger and wrath and his holiness? Not many, because that probably wouldn't be a very popular app. This is what I love about the Bible. You just get it all. By the way, this is why I love that we got to preach through the minor prophets, because I just, if I was just a topical preacher, I would never talk about this kind of stuff. This is not even cool to me. <laughs> all right, second point is this. Repentance is influenced by the power of God. Look in verse 3. So he says, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Then he says, reminding them of, of an aspect of God's character. Then he says in verse 3, Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of, what does it say? Hosts. Then it says, Return to me, says the what? Lord of hosts. And I will return to you, says the Lord of Do not be like your fathers, whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of... Look down in verse 6 at the very end. As the Lord of hosts. Get the idea? Five times you see the Lord of hosts. By the way, you see that a lot in Zechariah, the Lord of hosts. The word Lord, that is Yahweh, but that host, it has the idea of an army. You know, it's very intimidating if you see a big, huge army, a big, huge angel army. That's a pretty intimidating force. What I love in the fact that he's talking about this is he's saying, I want you to understand, you're not dealing with some puny God. You're dealing with the Lord who is the commander of the military of the legions of the army of angels. Like, this is the Lord of hosts. This is someone who whose presence and might and power cannot be thwarted, okay? You are a tiny and insignificant country against a much bigger nation. And that does something in our hearts. Realizing what God is like, how powerful he is, how he deals with sin, how he has his own way. And that brings us to a continual repentance. There's this thing that I've heard years ago where someone had said, Christians should not fear God. And my thought is, you obviously are not reading the same Bible I'm reading. Like, we should actually fear God. We should fear God. And that fear of God is what what draws us to repentance and actually draws us to the gospel because we, that fear of God lets you know that like, God actually doesn't suffer sin. He doesn't let us just walk in it. In fact, what's amazing, though, is this, that God's, uh, the way God works, we should fear him. But the way we fear him is we fear him for his disciplined hand that comes upon us. Like you and I, as we sin, we should fear God. His hand of discipline will come on us. But here's what's awesome about his hand of discipline. His hand of discipline is not to hurt us, but to actually help us. Just like a parent. 
when we actually discipline our kids, when are we parenting in a way that's not very gospel-centered is when we are disciplining just to punish. We actually discipline to correct behavior for the glory of God and their good. But sometimes I think people forget the power of God. They forget that He's the Lord of hosts. They forget that He is one that will bring appropriate discipline to His people. He does not let them get away with sin, not because He's just bad, because He has purposes. He has glory. He wouldn't let Israel continue to go in the direction they were going, so He brings them into Babylonian captivity to cleanse them and to bring them back. Even there's some of us here today that He's done that. That, that, that He's took you into exile And now he's bringing you back. Some of us might have family members or friends or people we've discipled. And and it just seems like there's nothing we can say to them that can bring them back. The Lord can. His power can. He's the Lord of hosts. I think sometimes if you have wayward children, sometimes I think that's hard. But here's what you've got to remember. He is the Lord of hosts. If God wants to do it, he can. He has a host of a kind of an army and no one can thwart his purposes. By the way, if you have an NASB Bible, I'm using, a, uh, in, I'm using an ESV, but I like what the NASB here says. It calls it the Lord of Armies. The New Living Translation, many of you may have this one. It says the Lord of Heaven's Armies. So number one is this. Repentance is influenced through a continual understanding of the character of God. Repentance is influenced by an understanding of the power of God. He is the Lord of Hosts. But then I would say this, number three, repentance is continually influenced in our life by the example of what God does with the unrepentant. Look in verse four. Do not be like your fathers. Talking about the former generation who from their sin brought them into Babylonian captivity. A lot of them had already died off. To whom the former prophets cried out, thus says the Lord of hosts, return from your evil ways and your evil deeds. Do not be like your fathers. So he brings up the past. He brings up what had happened with the former generation. He brings up what had happened with their forefathers. He says that they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. He says, look what God has done in the past and learn from that. Here's the thing. I don't like it when God's people go astray. But when I see God's hand of discipline go on people who go astray, it does help me to remind me of repentance myself. And like even when I'm reading the scriptures and I see the example of what God does, his, his discipline on his people all throughout the text of scripture, it kind of encourages me as well in that walk of repentance. By the way, just a side note. For those of us that are fathers, right? Many of us are fathers in here. May this text never be said by our children. I think of all the things in life that would probably just cut me to the core and to have my kids someday at my funeral say something like, Don't do like my father. Well, wouldn't that be a hard one? Look at the text that says this. Your fathers, they did not hear or pay attention to me. I have a side note in my notes that just says, Father, how are we doing, fathers? Would our children, if our children were honestly asked this question, what would they say? It was indicting just as a father to read this and go, the prophet is using the example of, the, of their fathers and calling into question their fathers. What an indicting thing. Fathers, how are we paying attention to our own souls? Is the work of repentance happening in our life? And let me give you an example of how you can know the work of repentance is going on in your life. When you sin against your kids, do you actually confess your sin? Right? Do you go, I sinned against God, I sinned against you. I should not have yelled at you. Y'all don't even yell at your kids, right? Y'all, never, y'all don't do anything like that, right? What about this? What about to your, to, to your own relationships? Like, have you ever said to your family, get this, have you ever said to your in-laws, right, that you sinned against? Have you ever said, I sinned against God, I sinned against you? I'm, I, I'm telling you, one of the ways to actually see, like, is repentance working in my life? Do you confess sin? I mean, do you actually use that dreaded F word of forgiveness? What about to your spouse? Do you know that the majority of married people have never heard their spouse admit when they're wrong? You know that? Have you ever confessed that to your actual spouse? Like, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Well, I'll tell you this. 
if that's nothing that's ever come out of your mouth, then I would challenge to go, are you walking in the life of repentance? Because here's what can happen. You can try to do all the right things as a spouse, but all that work of building up that temple, of doing all the right things, you know, but there's not this kind of ongoing work of repentance in your soul. Like, your soul is not meant to just work for the Lord and not rest in Him. Like, you can't, you can't do it. You just can't live life that way. What will you do? You'll act like the fathers did. And they went rebellious and idolatrous and worshiped everything else under the sun but the one true God. And here's the last thing. Look in verse 5. Your fathers, where are they? The prophets, do they live forever? But my words, the Lord says, and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? I love the last point of, of ongoing work of repentance. We find in the text, I see this idea of it, that the ongoing work of repentance happens when there's a, when you're constantly influenced by what the character of God is like. When you're constantly influenced by the power of God, by you're constantly influenced by the example of how God disciplines the unrepentant. But then number four, which I think is so critical, he points out to these to these people and saying, listen, the Lord's word over and over and over and over through the law of Moses and through the prophets warned them over and over and over about their sin and told them forecasted it, even told them like the names, even told them the nation. Isn't that crazy? Before they went into Babylonian captivity, God's prophets told them you're going to go into Babylonian captivity, right? Isn't that amazing? He, the prophets even told them who was going to be reigning when they came out of captivity. Isn't that crazy? And yet, here's what he says. The Lord's words and his statutes, they happened exactly did they not overtake your fathers? The fathers thought that the Lord's word weren't, wasn't true, wasn't going to happen. But yet, in the end, it did. It overtook. So the question is this. The ongoing work of repentance is influenced with our exposure to God's word. So what's it look like? Do you have Zechariah moments in your life where you're remembering who the Lord is through his word? I know, I feel, I know it's like a broken record. Like, Nick, you talk about that every single week. But I'm just telling you. If you don't have these daily times of Yahweh remembers, you are not going to survive this thing well. You will grow bitter and not better. You'll never see your own sin. And an unrepentant believer is a contradiction in terms of a person who has little joy in their life. The more there is a space for seeing the character of God and who He is, and in His Word you constantly get familiar with His power and His Word, like, this brings you into such a repentant soul that there's joy to be found. I think a lot of people don't have it. How do you know that? Because you won't extend forgiveness. I see, I see people all over. What's their biggest problem in life? They're very unforgiving. They're just unforgiving. They are replaying in their mind everything that someone has done to them. And they can't, they can't replace it with what God wants them to replace it with. And it's ongoing. This work of repentance... You'll see it in how they handle anger. You know the difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger? Right, do you know you can be righteously angry, right? You might be thinking, yeah, I have that every morning, right? I'm righteously angry. I'm driving down through Memphis, right? I'm righteously angry. All these slow drivers, right? I go around them and I look at them and give them an angry look, right? Righteous anger, right? Righteous anger is when you're angry about something done to the Lord or somebody else and you have a righteous response. Barely can count those on my hand. Unrighteous anger is when you're angry about something done to self, right? You're just concerned about self. And if we'll be honest, majority of all of our anger, we're angry about something done to us personally. That's what we get fixated on. You know what's interesting? The more we're putting ourselves in front of the word, the more we're submitting to the word, the more verse 6 we're... we're He's saying, like, listen, all that the Lord, all his words and his statutes that were spoken, did they not come true? Did, did the Lord's word not overtake your fathers, everything that he said? So I would say this, for our own souls, for us, the more we're pushed into the word, the more we're going to have a repentant soul and heart. So do this. Turn back over to Zechariah chapter 7. I just want to show you this as we end this time of talking about the ongoing work of repentance. Remember, Repentance, it's a change of mind. There's a worldly Judas kind, which is, it's a change of mind that re results in a change of action, but no change of heart, and you just revert back. 
But then there's a godly, godly repentance. It's a change of mind that results in a change of heart that results in a change of action. Remember what we looked at, verse 7? Thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Well, remember, he's now speaking this to them in the fourth year, two years later. So this work of repentance has to be ongoing, right? He's, he's reminding them and going, hey, just so you know, like this is what life should look like, right? You're still building the temple. This is what life should look like. Just your, your forefathers weren't doing this. He says, render true judgments, show kindness, show mercy to one another. Anybody ever treat you evil? That happened at work this week? All right. Anybody treat you evil, wrong? Anybody in your family? What does the Bible say you do back in return? You actually fight evil with what? Good, right? With love. You return kindness. God uses that as conviction. That's Romans 12. So it says this, Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, the poor. Like this is the outflow of what a repentant life looks like. And then, I love this. Like if you want to know today, Am I, like, Nick, give me just one little insight in my soul. How do I know I'm walking in a repentant kind of life? I'll tell you. Look at their life before the captivity. Look right here in the text. Let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. Are you thinking about evil? Are you thinking about doing evil to others? Are you premeditating about it? Are you guessing the motivations of others? Has your heart grown diamond hard against the Lord's word? Verse 12. How does a person know their heart has grown diamond hard? If you ever say in your soul, I know the Bible says that, but. I know the Bible says that, but. Do you get that? So what a great opportunity for us now to have a time of taking the Lord's Supper. And before we take the Lord's Supper, here's what we got to do. Here's why I love taking the Lord's Supper every week. Because it's a time for me to repent again. It's a time for an ongoing work of repentance. It's a time for me to kind of look at, like, Lord, have I devised evil in my heart against others? Am I, am, I, am I thinking things that are wrong about them? Am I thinking about things I think they're thinking? Like, Lord, am I devising evil? Lord, am I showing kindness and mercy? When you look in the scriptures about the love feast that they had in Corinthians, they, God was disciplining them because they weren't coming to their love feast, their communion times, with a repentant heart. They had all this rivalry and backbiting that was going on. They were selfish and greedy and all these things were going on. And actually, communion was a time where everybody was on level ground before the cross. What a wonderful time. If you've come this morning and you're thinking, okay, Lord, that, uh, Nick, that's been me. I've been very unrepentant in my soul towards others. We're going to sing. We're going to have an opportunity for you to pray to confess this to the Lord. And then watch what the Lord does. He starts changing the heart. Like, walk out of here and go like, renew your soul in the Lord's word. Renew your soul in his character. Would you stand with me? Lord, let our time of singing help to prepare our souls to take the Lord's Supper. Let it prepare our souls to just edify in the church body before we do that. Lord, maybe there's sin to confess. Maybe there's an encouraging word. Maybe someone has seen what you've done this week. Maybe there's a prayer to pray over the church body. Lord, whatever you have for that time, let our souls be prepared. Thank you for our text, this ongoing work. I'm so thankful how you've rescued many in our congregation from a self-focused, self-centered, self-exalting kind of life. And you've done it through the process of continual repentance. Sweetness in that grace so we can show mercy and love 